Hey friends, welcome to Garden Church Podcast. This is a series called Jesus People. We are looking at who Jesus is and how we become more like him. Jesus People are God's strategy for transforming the world. We hope you enjoy this podcast. For more information, go to garden.church. Preaching through Jesus People, this series, uh, looking at what it means to be disciples of Jesus. We're looking at his ministry, what he did, learning his narratives of what he believed. We're looking at practices. Last week, we talked about fasting. Before that, we talked about healing ministry of Jesus. Today, we're going to talk about something else. Now, I am feeling all sorts of things because I have three services to preach, and I'll say 11 is my favorite so far. Um, I called out the nine this morning comparing them to you, but I did find this morning, or actually this week I was talking to Daniel and he was like, have you ever noticed that the day of Pentecost, the spirit fell at the 9 a.m. service? And I was like, oh, that's a good, that's a great observation. Nine o'clock in the morning, the Holy Spirit fell. So I brought it to the 9 a.m. I challenged them a little bit. But if it happened today, I would say it happened at the 11 o'clock. So anyways, expectant, ready for God to move. Um, but I wanted to pray because I, th I think as I, as I step into this, um, I know God uses it for good soil, but I also know there's a lot of opposition. And you don't realize this, maybe some of you do, but you're all fighting battles against spiritual powers. And it may not always feel super spiritual, but there, are, there is an enemy working against the life God wants to give you. And as I talk about this, even the concept that I'll preach on will trigger some of you, to use that word. You're going to be triggered by it. Um, some of you are recovering Catholics uh, or recovering uh, religious folks that have, that have been built your faith on a, a form of religion that's not the gospel. And you've met Jesus and you're still trying to make sense of it. And I want to pray for all of you. So let's pray for that. Jesus the conquering king, the one who set us free in a self-sacrificial, loving act of extravagant generosity. You took on the world and the worst thing it had to offer. You took on our sin. You took on the devil and Satan and the powers working against your kingdom. You took on death and you were victorious. And we thank you for the gospel. And I pray in the name of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, who is held in high honor in this church, that all the powers working against the church would be bound in the name of Jesus and sent to you, Jesus. So I pray for liberation and freedom. I pray for joyful repentance, joyful surrender. And I pray, God, that you would be Lord of this, this 11 o'clock service uniquely. Give us focus and attention. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Mark chapter one. Let's check this out. Mark chapter one. You can't do Luke. You gotta do Mark. Mark chapter one. Um, <clears throat> verse 40. I wanna check this out. We're gonna, should I tell you the title of the sermon? All right, the title is Consecrated Life in an Age of Compromise. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. All right, some context. Jesus is doing his first day of ministry in Galilee around that region. 
casting out demons, healing the sick, proclaiming the kingdom of God in the power of the Holy Spirit in Mark chapter one. And in this moment, a man with leprosy comes to Jesus and asks this question, if you're willing, he knows he's able, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Clean is a unique word. Because we read it and we're like, oh yeah, he's, he's a leper, I get it. Now, there's so much context to this moment in Jesus' life that we read over. All right, so Jesus is in Israel. He's in a place that follows the Torah and the law. The Old Testament has all sorts of expectations for daily life on the, those who live in Israel. So if you were a Jewish boy or girl, which in this situation, Jesus is ministering to Jews um, and Gentiles, but primarily Jews, uh, you follow the Old Testament. And the Old Testament word for clean is really a paradigm. It's a worldview of existence right? Clean is connected to the word righteous and justice and um, goodness and godliness and most importantly to holiness. Almost the entire Old Testament, the character of God is revealed as, as holy. It's his nature. It's who he is. He exists in perfect holiness, set apart. The word holy means to be set apart. It comes from this Hebrew word, means to be cut. And the idea for Israel is God is holy. And when he frees Israel out of Egypt, he says to them in Exodus 19, that you will be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. In other words, the vocation of Israel was to be like God to the world, to be set apart from the world to be set apart for the world. Are you with me? Now, in order to do this, to accomplish this, this idea of holiness, of being set apart, God provided law, a way of living that was supposed to produce this character needed for everyone that claimed to follow God. 613 commands in the Old Testament dedicated to you being holy or clean. In fact, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Torah, the first five books of our Bible are, are uniquely architected uh, to be one book, really. And, and if you read Genesis, it's similar to Deuteronomy, the same length. Exodus is similar to Numbers. And Leviticus is at the center. It's the pinnacle of all the books. And the center of the whole Torah is the Day of Atonement where God meets once and for all with his people. Interesting. Just a little side note. That's all free. If you were a leper, it was a death sentence. Leprosy wasn't just a se- uh, one of the 72 categories of skin conditions that you would be identified with leprosy in the first century time that Jesus is ministering. Uh, rabbis outside of our scripture called it lepers the walking dead, the living dead. To be called a leper meant that you were unholy, that you were unclean. And that meant you couldn't go to the temple to offer sacrifice for your sins. You couldn't be in relationship, right relationship with God, according to the law. You couldn't fellowship with your community, which was all your entire work week, your life was designed in a communal setting. Unlike our individualistic culture content or context, we would all be hanging out all the time as part of a congregation. And if you were a leper, you lived outside of the city walls, outside of the protection. You could not live with your family. If you were a father, you couldn't hold your boy. 
You lose your fingers most likely because it's a skin condition. When it goes bad, it, you're going to ooze all sorts of sores from your body. You're going to not feel anything, so you'll lose limbs very easily. Parts of your body would be disfigured. In the Old Testament, it was a death sentence to be unclean. You could not fellowship with God. You couldn't work with your hands. You couldn't be with your family. You couldn't um, engage. It was seen as a curse from God. This is what's going on. The only way to be clean is to go to the temple after ceremonial washings over and over again to be told by a priest in the temple that you actually were examined and you were healed and now you are once and for all declared clean. Because that word clean is life back with your family. That word clean is life back with your kids. That word clean is working with your hands again. That word clean is right relationship with God. Clean. This man with leprosy doesn't go to the temple. He doesn't go to a priest in the first century. He goes to Jesus. And in Leviticus, if you had leprosy, you had to wear gross clothes, unkempt hair. You had to let your hair grow out. You had to let facial hair grow out. You had to smell bad. This is all part of the commands in Leviticus. You should read it. What to do with mold in your house. Leviticus will help you. If you wanted to go into the town for supplies, smelling all sorts of nasty, looking terrible. You would walk in, cover your mouth, and stay 50 paces away from everyone else according to the tradition, holding your mouth like this, shouting, unclean, unclean, unclean. Goes to Jesus, doesn't announce that he's unclean. They can tell by the smell. If you are willing, you can make me clean. The audacity. Jesus says in Mark 1, was indignant. Strange word. Now in the Greek, that word could also translate to compassion. Jesus was filled with compassion, which makes sense based on what happens next. It says, he reached out his hand and he touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. But I feel like it and not just me, but lots of scholars, there's a debate on this. Was it compassion or is it indignant? And I think indignant's an appropriate word. I think in that moment, what's happening in Jesus' mind, he's not mad at this man. He's mad at the system. He's mad at the thing that is designed to pronounce cleanliness and holiness is not, in fact, clean or holy. The thing that is designed to create a ritual for him to be cleansed, to bring healing, to bring life and restore, restore people back to their proper place is a thing that's preventing him from life. Oh, Jesus, indignant. Could say the word, be clean. That's all he had to do. He doesn't have to do what he does. But so that you see what holiness looks like embodied so that you see what the Torah lived in perfection looks like, so that you see that in Jesus, holy God, holiness moves towards the sinner, not just says the word, but touches the untouchable. He reaches out his hand and says, I'm willing. Be clean. Leprosy leaves him. And then he says, I love this. See that you don't tell anyone. <laughs> like the biggest story in this guy's life. Don't say a word. It has to do with his messianic mission. Because if he says something, it's going to grow. It's gonna, his fame is going to be a threat to God's movement. 
Some of you have fame or influence and you think it's from the Lord because you got all these open doors. Let me tell you, that's the, oftentimes the enemy's way of rushing you. Open doors are not always God's invitation to more. If the devil can't shut you up, he'll give you a megaphone. Let's keep going. You're like, what? say that again? Hold on one second. See that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer sacrifices that the Old Testament Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them so that the system can see what's possible. Jesus is a symbol of what's possible for the system. He lives as a a marker, a prophetic witness to the Old Testament because he is the embodiment of Torah. He's living Torah. Now, a couple of observations I just want to make because we're talking about holiness today. We're talking about a consecrated life. If you didn't see that coming with the title of the sermon, three observations. Jesus touches the leper. He's immediately considered unclean based on the law. Just making that clear. He is a marked man. He cannot be out in public. He needs to stay outside of the city because he has to go through the ceremony and cleansing of what it means to be clean and holy. Number two, when he touches the leper, leprosy is gone and the man is healed. And Jesus says, be clean, telling him that the Old Testament commands of the, to fulfill the institutional requirements of being reinstated as a member of Jewish community has happened in Jesus. Why? He is the high priest. He has, he is the walking temple of the living God where holiness resides in the temple one day a year, the day of atonement. Read Leviticus and you'll see the influence of 16 and 17 chapters, chapter 16 and 17 about what was required for that. Jesus is the embodiment. And number three that I want you to see that Jesus' holiness is contagious where you in that legal system would be marked as unclean. Jesus reveals there's a greater power that can mark your life when you're living under the authority of God, an unction that makes innocent bystanders holy and clean. Because holiness is contagious. What, what I want you to see in this series, number one, is Jesus is holy. You're welcome. When you look at Jesus, you see what holiness really looks like. And there's a couple of passages I just want to pull your attention to. Uh, John chapter 8, verse 46, when he's being undermined by the religious folks, the Pharisee, about his ministry, Jesus says, can any of you prove me guilty of sin? He's himself saying, I don't have any sin. Which is why Paul, who works out, who was a Pharisee, works out his Old Testament plus the Pharisaic oral traditions, which added 1,500 commands on top of the 613 commands, is working out what Jesus did in his life and ministry as what we call the New Testament theology. And when he looks at the cross, he says, look, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He's saying Jesus was the spotless lamb, the unblemished holy sacrifice that took away our sins. He was sinless. He took on the world's sins so that we now can be the righteousness of God. Jesus was without sin. He was holy. He was pure. He was without blemish. He was guiltless. 
He, there was nothing that could be, he was the embodiment of truth, life, purity, and holiness. Are you with me? One more point, 1 John 3, verse 5 says, but you know that he appeared so that he may take away our sins and in him is no sin. Now, quick disclaimer, I talk about holiness and a lot of you just pull away. And I get it because what you hear when you hear holiness is I'm, I don't measure up. Am I right? Most of us were like, this is what we think of when it comes to the church. It's a place of a bunch of, judgmental hypocrites who are so loud about the other sins but don't talk about their sins. We will policy the other sins and ignore the really insidious sins we're all carrying around because we've made those less serious sins. Or maybe you had those bigger sins at one point in your life and now you've got victory over those, but you ignore the fact that your impatience is sinful when it comes to your family. Your, your, your pornography addiction's gone, but you're still lusting after houses on Zillow. I see you. <laughs> What if that is a sin that you've tolerated and justified before the Lord, but he wants you to be holy? You've abdicated responsibility for your home as a father. What if he wants you to be holy, humble, to lead with the kind of character that Christ has? What if that's the call? You see, for Jesus, holiness is contagious. It's ongoing embracing and joyous. It transforms and brings reconciliation. It's not this religious ideology. This is not this religious state that's immovable. It is always moving towards the broken. In the Old Testament, the word for holy appears over 850 times. But there's all these other words in the scripture that describe the idea of holiness. It's cleanliness, purity, blamelessness, glory, righteousness, godliness, honor, goodness, truthfulness, trustworthiness, and awe. These are all things and categories. In other words, holiness is such a big deal. It's one of the central concepts of the entire Old Testament because God is holy. Leviticus 19, God says to, uh, through Moses, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy because I am the Lord your God am holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. God himself is holy. He exists and separated from creation. His nature and character is holy. It's not just an attribute, it's who he is. And he calls us to holiness. And it matters. And it matters today for lots of reasons. But why does it matter so much? It matters because, to quote Gandalf, the darkness is deepening. God bless you. Demons flee. I'm not really saying you had a demon, but I was, maybe you do. I'm just kidding. Darkness is deepening. We live in a secularism and secular, secular society has, uh, sorry, secularism has sold us a society without God. And we're worshiping material things and there's a moral breakdown. There's a moral meltdown. Society has no reason to be moral today. And so we're surprised when the world acts like the world. 
when sinners act like sinners, we, we're like, oh, we shouldn't worry. Jesus says in Matthew 12, Satan cannot cast out Satan. Darkness flees when light walks in the room. Light comes in and darkness goes out the back door. And the church, we've hidden the gospel because our lives don't uh, preach it anymore. I love what John Piper says. If you don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it's not because you have drunk deeply and are satisfied. It's because you have nibbled so long at the table of the world and your soul is stuffed with small things and there's no room for the great. In a world of compromise, we need a, church, a consecrated church. This is about your freedom. Now, let's stick to the Old Testament for a second. I want to talk about what you do in the Old Testament when you are moved to pursue God. Because there were 613 commands, and there, there's this way of living. But even those commands, God provided a grace for breakthrough. Now, stay with me for a second. We'll get back to the New Testament. I'm just going to, I'm mixing up the 11 a.m. from the 9 a.m. You're going to get a different version of my first sermon. Uh, in Numbers chapter 6, there was this um, a vow created for people. And scholars debate why this was created. Why, why did you need this vow? If you had all these legal ramifications, these ways of following God and staying pure and holy, why would you need an additional vow for God's redemptive work? And so most people think that it was for two reasons. One reason was that you were desperate for God to do something in your life. You're desperate for him to move. Have you ever been in a place where you needed God to show up? Have you ever been owned by something? And all the fasting and all the discipline, all the, the, all the you know, juice fasts that you could, all the yoga meditations, all the things that you could do, you did, and it's still there? Some scholars believe that this vow in the Old Testament were for those folks that were owned. And in Numbers chapter 6, I just want to show you this vow, and we'll come back uh, to the New Testament in a second. So um, it's like you prayed and prayed and prayed, and you're desperate for God. And so Numbers has this, like, this grace for those that are owned by something and need breakthrough. And it says this, first one. So this is a vow. It says, speak to the Israelites and say to them, if a man or woman wants to make a special vow, that word special is unique. It's the root word. It means wonderful, amazing, or miraculous. Have them do this miraculous vow. And it's a vow of dedication to the Lord as a Nazarite. That's a term. This is a Nazarite vow. They must abstain from wine and other fermented drink. So first thing that you're going to do if you're going to take on this vow, so there's going to be additional conditions to the 613 commands. You want God to show up in your life, you got to take on this way of living. First thing, don't drink. They're like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Based on our culture, our culture has this moderation value that didn't happen until later in the 1800s in the West, just so you know. So it's not a common thing to think, okay, alcohol is bad. It wasn't back then an issue because drinking wine was part of your life. Like every Sabbath, you're having wine. Every Exodus, uh, I'm sorry, every Passover meal uh, where you celebrate the Seder, you have four glasses of wine to symbolize the significance of God's work in throughout history through Israel. Uh, every wedding you went to, every ceremony, every meal, you would have wine. It was part of your ordinary life. This this isn't about a character thing. This isn't about uh, you practicing something that's bad based on culture. This is about dedication to the Lord. 
And when you have desire for God, good things need to go away. Desire is always connected to denial. Desire is always connected to denial. If there's something that owns you, how much are you willing to let go of so that you can have God? How much of your ordinary life are you willing to say, I'm gonna put these things on pause so that I can seek the Lord? I did an interview with one of our, our staff members uh, on the podcast after fasting. And he had fasted, not knowing we were preaching on fasting for I think five or six days. And he's like, I had to give up my routine of working out because I knew, which is very life-giving for him, I wouldn't have the energy to keep doing what I normally do in order to honor God with the fast. I was like, that one thing, that going into it, you knew that you couldn't just do life as normal in order. You had to surrender good, positive hobbies for the sake of God. That's what this is about. You see, it's connected to greater desire. God's shaping your desire. So you don't drink, which is about pursuing God. And pursuing God will change the ordinary habits of your lifestyle. That's what the Nazarite vow teaches. And then it goes on, it says this. It says, during that entire period of their Nazarite vow, no razor may be used on their head, they must be holy until the period of uh, their dedication to the Lord is over. They must let their hair grow long. Throughout the pr- period of their dedication to the Lord, the Nazarite must not go near a dead body. So two more commitments. Number one, don't cut your hair. Number two, don't touch dead people. Sounds good. Don't drink. Don't cut your hair. Don't touch dead people. Now, in our context, this doesn't make sense. It's very different in our context. This is written to a group of people wandering at the time. Cutting Hair had more to do um, with a physical representation of your radical devotion to God. And it will be used in the greatest sacrifice, and I'll talk about that in a second. Not touching a dead body is about purity and holiness. That you are gonna, like there were ways that you would be made clean after somebody died in your family. And, and in that context, there was people dying. There were people dying all the time. And you lived in such close proximity, like, you know, grandpa died in your house. And that was part of the grieving process. And so for that season, there was, there was all these rules and laws that you do to be part of that grieving process and then to eventually be made clean. Now, they're saying, again, ordinary things that are okay and acceptable in the season where you're dedicating your life, where you want God to show up, you have to opt out of those ordinary things. They're not bad. Cutting your hair, not bad. Grieving the loss of your family and participating in that loss in, through proximity is not bad. But when you're doing something to the Lord, it requires sacrifice. Are you guys with me? Yeah. One more thing on this. So it ends, and this is what's so fascinating. You would do this vow because you want God to show up in the Old Testament. I want him to show up. So I'm, gonna, I'm not going to cut my hair. I'm not going to drink from the wine. I'm not going to eat cakes, which is what it talks about if you keep reading. But then I got to bring a sacrifice. And here's the list. Numbers 3 through 18, it's actually 6 through 18, has a list of all the offerings you have to bring in order to fulfill your vow. Look at all this. And you're like, okay, yeah, that's crazy. The last thing, so hold on, if you get a year, uh, um, well, let me just say this, keep that up there. Scholars think that you could not afford to do this. Or if you could afford to do it, it would take your life savings to offer that sacrifice based on the cost of those sacrifices in the temple. 
So a couple of ideas. One, it would require your life savings to go to the Lord in one giant sacrifice. Two, the community of God would have to help you sacrifice it. So it wasn't you fulfilling your vow. It's the community going, we're in this together. I'll bring the basket of bread. I'll bring the grain. I'll bring the ram without. So the community was like, we see you because you've been walking. You've not been drinking with us. You've been, for the last 30 days, the last month, the last year, you've not been around when somebody died in the community. We're part of this. And then what you do at the end is as your hair grows out, the last offering is you go to the temple, to the tent of meeting, and you sit there and the priest shaves your head as the final offering symbol of your wild devotion to the Lord they take your hair and they burn it on the altar of God yeah could you imagine growing up watching all these sacrifices and then the final sacrifice is the hair you smell burnt hair a Jewish boy and girl would smell devotion that's dedication that's desperation that's somebody who's given up everything for God to move in their life. Why would someone take on the Nazarite vow? Well, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, God provided a grace for freedom. Maybe they were addicted. Maybe they had a destructive habit or behavior. Somebody owned them. Something owned them. And they needed, they got so tired of the struggle that they were losing that they said, I'll give it all to God so you could break in. And grace. But there was another reason. There was another reason for someone to give up those things. All throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, which I'll talk about later, Nazarites would show up when Israel was in their darkest moment, when culture was at its worst, and you would think there's no way God's going to move. These people who represented covenantal faithfulness to God. When everyone was doing the wrong thing, they were living in right relationship with God through sacrifice. The Nazarites would appear and God would move. God would change the story of Israel through individuals who chose this special fast. These Nazarites would come onto the scene and all of a sudden Samson is coming and he's defeating the enemies of God. You see over and over again, you see Samuel dedicated, the prophet of the Lord comes and where there was silence, now the word of God is going out. A king is dedicated unto the Lord through the Nazarite Samuel. You see over and over again, when Israel was in its darkest moment, God would bring people as prophetic symbols of covenantal faithfulness. It is possible to live unto the Lord. As the world is a shipwreck in, a, in a, a sea of chaos, there are people standing on dry land saying there's a way. There's a better way. Perhaps this is why God is inviting us to consecrate ourselves. To live as a prophetic symbol today where the gospel's preached through our lives, put on display, not through our words. Yes, we need to share the gospel. We'll talk about that in a couple weeks with our words. But we need to embody the character of God because this is where we go back to the New Testament. Let me just say this. In a world of compromise, we need a consecrated church. Holiness is about usefulness for God's purposes. 
Holiness is not about you achieving anything. It's about being useful unto the Lord. It's about being freed to be the person that God has called you. Holiness is about living in your truest identity. Holiness empowers you to do the things that God desires to happen in the world. It creates a stage for you to be free. The church is called to be holy. The church is called holy. It's called to be holy. It's called to live holy because we are called to represent God into the world. 1 Peter chapter 1 says, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Listen to this. He says, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written in Leviticus, Be holy because I am holy. It's not an Old Testament concept that we follow. It's a New Testament command to live in holiness and purity unto the Lord. In fact, in the New Testament, the word for holy is hagios. And it means holy or saint or holy ones. And it's used over 150 times. It means to be separate, dedicated, or consecrated to God. And the call from all the New Testament writers is to be holy. Now stay with me because you need a quick theological detour to make sense of this. Because I know some of you are listening, you're like, this is scary. This is like works of righteousness. Pause one quick, real quick. Let's reframe our idea of holiness through the New Testament lens. The primary word Paul uses in the New Testament to address the church is the word hagios, which is holy ones or saints. Just to make my point, here are the scriptures. Romans chapter one, he says, Actually, Ephesians chapter one, to God's holy people in Ephesus, to, God, to the saints in Ephesus, Romans chapter one, verse seven, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. First Corinthians chapter one, verse two, to the church of God in Corinth, to the sanctified in Christ, Jesus called to be his holy. Some of you are here at second Corinthians chapter one, to the church of God in Corinth, together with all his Holy people throughout Philippians chapter one. He skips Galatians, by the way. They weren't. Philippians chapter one. <laughs> to God's holy people. To, in Colossians chapter one, to God's holy people. What am I trying to say? In the New Testament, if you are a Christian, there is no biblical evidence for calling yourself a sinner. Not one place. If you are in Christ, you are saint. You are holy. You are set apart. You have been power washed and cleansed from the inside out. This is the gospel. If you say, yes, I believe that Jesus is Lord and raised from the dead, you accept a new reality about him, about the world, and about who you are. You are no longer defined by what you do. You are no longer defined by what you did. You are no longer defined about what you feel or think about yourself. You are set apart. You are holy. You are blameless. You are sacred. Yes, we sin. But you are no longer defined as a sinner. It's not part of your identity. Let me put it another way. You are holy. So be holy. The gospel is this is what God has done and this is how you live now in response to what he's already done. You have been made holy because of Jesus Christ. This is gonna fly in the face of religion where you have to earn 
and prove and work your way to an identity of accepted beloved saint not in Jesus's church. In Jesus's church, you haven't, you can't possibly earn the unmerited grace and favor on your life when you become a Christian. It says in the scripture, your life is hidden in Christ. Your life is hidden in the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and your life will be on display when Christ comes back in glory. You are no longer allowed to consider yourself a sinner. You are a saint who struggles. You're welcome for that. You are holy, so now live in response to who you are. You are becoming who you already are. So on June 9th, 2007, got it right. I got it wrong in the first year. How did I get it wrong? My wife was listening and she's like, you, you, it was June 9th, not June 7th. Um, I stood before a crowd of witnesses and I said, I do. <laughs> You're like, why is this a big deal? This is my wedding day. <laughs> June 9th, 2007. I was, uh, yeah, okay, so. <laughs> now, up until that point of my life, I was trained in singleness. I was formed in singleness. I knew what it meant to live as a single. I had three roommates at the time, four of us in a two-bedroom apartment. I had learned the ways, uh, I had mastered the ways of singleness. I read some books. I went through premarital class. I met with Bill. I did pre-engagement. I did engagement. I did premarital counseling with Bill. Nothing could have prepared me for the new identity I received as husband. In that moment, I became husband. And I had to learn, I am learning <laughs> how to be Alex's husband. And in the early days, and still to this day, but in the early days especially, lots changed. Early on, you know, you go from living with three guys to one woman in the same bed, very different experience. Would you agree? For those of you that are... <laughs> You, like your calendars emerge, your, your finances emerge, you're learning a whole new way of life. You're learning that you wash the sheets every week, not once a month. <laughs> Toilet paper, there's a preference, not the price, it's not the price, it's there's a preference of what kind of ply. There's a way in which it goes, I guess there is a way <laughs> that it goes on. These are all silly things that you learn. There's a lot more of real deep things that I had to learn of what it meant to be a husband. On November 18th, 2013, I was handed my boy Ezra and I became a father. I had no idea. I mean, you could read, you not prepared for that first year at all. Every time I made a mistake as a husband or father, did I lose my identity? Of course not. I had to learn how to be who I already was. Brothers and sisters, you're saints. You are holy. So be it. Be who you already are. That's where consecration comes in. You don't start with, I have to earn my way to Jesus. You start with, thank you, God. Amazing. Help me become the man or the woman you've called me to be. And in the beginning of this journey, can I say this? Like the beginning of my marriage, a lot of things change very quickly. There are a lot of things I stopped doing. 
and things that had to be, like if you're still living as a single man once you're married, you're failing in your identity. <laughs> Some of you need to hear this. Things will, you should change in your marriage. So like I am who I am. That's not true. You are learning to change and love and become the right person for your spouse and to love in the way that Jesus loves and, and out of reverence for Christ, submit to one another, to the Lord. As a husband, or I'm sorry, as a father, I'm way better now than I was at the beginning. Now in the beginning, it was a lot of physical stuff, like I had to survive, like your, your parenting is about keeping your kids from death. <laughs> you go to the beach, you're like, don't eat the sand, right? Like, that's where it starts. You're like, okay, I did it, babe. I, you bring so much gear in the beginning, right? Like, you bring, you bring a packing plate for the sand so you can enjoy the beach, but you don't enjoy the beach. You don't sit with a book and a towel. You sit with all the stuff. You'll get there one day. But then they get to an age where you're teaching them how to surf. You're not worried about death by sand. You're worried about, here's how you surf well. It grows. The role changes. The same is true with the Lord. You come in the beginning and there's things he's like, this has to come off the table. Let's, let's get rid of this. Let's move these things. I love what Francis Chan said. He says, um, uh, you find that things you let go of while following Jesus were the things that were going to destroy you in the end. One worship leader, Stephanie. What's your last name, Amanda? Gretzinger. She said, the further you go into God's glory, the less you can take with you. So you're like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm losing all this identity. I'm losing this me part. No, 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 no. Holiness is the truest version of yourself. God's not a killjoy. He is joy. You don't lose yourself as you, be, as you die to yourself. You become the person God created you to be. The more you become like Jesus, the more you become the best version of yourself. And that is hard for us to hear. Here's why. Because our culture says, do what feels right. Do what you think is true. And remember what I said? Desire is always connected to denial. So in our world that wants us to do what we desire, as Christians, there are some desires that have to be denied because we have to be obedient to God. There are some desires that you have that our world says, this is fine, but we have to say, I am going to choose to not fulfill this desire to be obedient to, the, to God. Everyone has to do that. Some of us have to do that to more, more than others. Some of us have more we have to give up because our desires for things outside of God's way are great inside of us. Holiness is about you becoming human again as this world deforms humanity through its fulfill your greatest desires, we say, no, we, the greater desire is him. And the more we look at Jesus, the more we become like him. And the more you look at him, you'll see that the beauty of him is in his holiness. It's in his obedience. It's in his faithfulness and his kindness and gentleness. And true holiness always moves directly towards the sinner. So in our culture, where we talk about consecration and holiness, we run to the dark. I'm gonna use somebody's story. There's a famous preacher. She had the story about her son or her daughter, one of them. They went, they're, they're from Australia and they had, went to a Walmart and they got these giant flashlights and it was so bright. And she tells a story where um, he was just shining it everywhere and he gets this flashlight and he says, mommy, 
let's go find some darkness. See, I think what the Lord is preparing us for is for us to run straight into the darkness so that God would be on display through your life. Thanks for joining us. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. For more information, go to Garden.Church. God bless you.